Welcome to Sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Welcome to the 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. service at First Alliance Church. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Luke and Acts. It actually so happens that we're mid-stride our missions month. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on missions. We've had some guest speakers. Next Sunday, Cinder Krishnan will be here also talking about missions. And we're going to see this morning that as we journey back into Luke, uh, this is going to have a lot to say about our mission as Christians and as the church as well. So I want to invite you to open a Bible to Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. And uh, if you're new to church and new to the Bible uh, and you want to find where we are and follow along in the Blue Bible, you can follow along on page 844. And we are going to dive into God's Word to us this morning. And up to this point, Jesus has become embroiled in a series of conflicts. Uh, when the kingdom of God comes near, there's a clash. And today we're entering to the third of a set of three conflicts. So let's read Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. It says, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as, but now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law, or lawyers, answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you, experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them, so you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of them whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, 
and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. This is God's word to us this morning. Will you pray with me? Living God, we believe that your Holy Spirit inspired Luke to pen these words. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come upon us this morning and illumine our hearts and minds to understand them, to understand the good news that undergirds them and the kind of life that you want us to live and as you show us the kind of life you do not want us to live. Jesus, we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. As we journey into this passage this morning, I just want to be clear, you can have a pen out, uh, you can write in your journal, you can have your phone out and take notes. No one's going to judge you. Um, also, the slides that we're going to see, they'll be on our website later if you want to go ahead and, and look at those later on. So there's lots to resource you in your learning. Uh, humans have a tendency to misplace our priorities. We get mixed up about what really matters. One morning, a New Yorker was taking a morning stroll on the Williamsburg Bridge when a mugger jumped up and surprised him. He took out a gun and he demanded his cell phone. Not wanting to hand over his most prized possession, he essentially dared his attacker to pry the phone from his cold, dead hands. The robber happily obliged his request and shot him in the leg. Now here's where most people would have counted their losses, you know, forked over the phone and gotten out of there. Uh, but not this New Yorker. He began to limp away as fast as he could, still clinging to his phone. And the mugger had his priorities slightly more straight. He decided that a cell phone wasn't worth risking a murder charge, and he gave up the assault. See, valuing your phone above your life, that's really messed up. You've got some messed up priorities there. The Pharisees had their own set of mixed up priorities. The Pharisees were a group within God's people who were strict law keepers. They believed that God's kingdom would be helped in its arrival through the stricter observance of God's law. How will God's future reign arrive? How will our fortunes be restored. We're under the foot of the Roman Empire. We have been conquered again and again and again, yet God has promised that we would have a kingdom. How is this going to happen? And they said, by rigorously keeping God's law, that by doing so, they were creating the right conditions for the kingdom to come. So what they did, what, what, what their kind of self-appointed job was to, go, was to go around prodding people to be better at their religion. So Jesus reclines at table with them. And they're surprised by something that Jesus fails to do. He doesn't wash his hands. Uh, this wasn't a hygienic thing. This was a ritual washing, and it wasn't mandated in the law itself, but by kind of the ever-unfolding interpretation of the law and layers upon layers of stipulations added to it. And this, this triggers something in Jesus. Did you, did you notice how explosive Jesus is in this passage? It triggers something. 
And as we explore what Jesus is kind of exploding about, I just want to caution us. A lot of people, especially in an anti-institutional age, a lot of people think Jesus is against organized religion as such or institutions as such. But what we're going to see is that what Jesus is addressing isn't a, a problem of organizations. It's a problem of the human heart. It's a problem in our hearts. And so what we're going to do this morning is consider what I want to call religiosity. The problem of religiosity, what its marks are, what it is at its heart, and what the antidote is that is true Christian faith. And by religiosity, what I mean is, is that toxic tendency that, that can come upon people of faith, uh, where we get mixed up priorities and, and don't end up living the life God wants us to live. So what are the marks of religiosity? First of all, it's superficial. It's more concerned with managing what people see on the outside, right, our appearance, than with having a clean heart and a healthy inner life. The image Jesus uses just shows how foolish this is. Verse 39, now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of a cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed. You care about having a good show, but you don't care about having a clean heart. It's like using a cup that is clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. Now, when it comes to drinking from a cup, which is more important? I want to ask you, which cup would you rather drink from? These are two of my office mugs. This one is filthy on the outside. Look at that. I don't know if you can see that very well. This one's not. Which one do you want to drink from? This one? No, this one. Okay. Well, if you choose this one, you, you might be okay because the inside is spotless. It's shining. If you chose the one that's clean on the outside, you might be disappointed. It's got uh, coffee silt uh, left over from last week. Uh, it's got, you know, you might be, t if you're having tea, you might not taste tea. You might taste something else. Uh, so what really matters when it comes to drinking from a cup? I can handle, you know, this is Crayola marker. I can handle Crayola marker on the outside of my cup. I can't handle last week's coffee grounds. Right? What's really important? It's gross to drink from a cup that's dirty on the inside. And it's just as foolish to care more about our outside of appearance than to care about the condition of our heart. Along similar lines, religiosity is trivial. In verse 42, look at what Jesus says. They tithe all their herbs. And the law only really required people to tithe the major crops like corn, wine, and oil. But they tithe all, all these little herbs because they want to show people how serious they are, how meticulous they are about herbs and tithing and ritual hand-washing. But Jesus says... But they're doing that to the neglect of something far more important, of the weightier matters of justice and the love or the agape of God. What religious, religiosity does is it makes a, a really big deal out of, out of small things and it ignores the major things. Religiosity also boosts self 
importance. Look at verse 43. We find out what they really love. They, they don't love, they're not loving justice and the love of God. They're not loving God. What they love is the most important seats in the synagogues. What they love is the most respectful greetings in the marketplace. Religiosity boosts the ego. It creates a pecking order through its trivialities and ways of ranking people. And of course, the person who is saturated in this religiosity, who is creating this pecking order in their mind, who's on top? Of course, they're on top, right? They're on top of the pecking order. They need to feel important. And religiosity doesn't just uh, boost self-importance. It craves it. It loves it. It covets it. It needs to feel the praise of others to have a sense of self-worth. Religiosity also pollutes the community. That's the meaning of verse 44. When Jesus calls the Pharisees unmarked graves, Here's what he's saying. According to Jewish law, any contact with a dead thing made you unclean. And so by calling them unmarked graves, he, he's saying, you know, you don't look dead, but you're like the walking dead among the community. And everyone you come into contact with is made unclean by your presence. He's calling them zombies in a sense. They think they are cleansing the people by calling them to strict Torah observance, but in reality, they're polluting people. And it's the same in, in the church. I mean, we can see how uh, we can make one step from what we see in the Pharisees to some, some toxic tendencies in the body of Christ, right? Religiosity p pollutes the unity we have in Christ because we're making this pecking order and, and judging people. It also tarnishes our witness, when people smell religiosity in Christians, Christianity dies a thousand deaths. At this point, the lawyers speak up, and it's kind of a funny scene, you know? Jesus is really blasting the Pharisees, and then the lawyers are like, hey, wait a second. He's also insulting us, you know? We're their allies. When you say these things, you insult us too. And, and you know, if you don't want to get blasted by Jesus, that's what you shouldn't do. <laughs> You shouldn't say, hey, Jesus, now look at us. <laughs> and and so, so the crosshairs turn from the Pharisees to the lawyers, right? Verse 46, and you, experts in the law, you lawyers, be, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you won't lift a finger to help them. Religiosity is burdensome. The teaching and interpretation of the lawyers with all these unraveling stipulations, was just weighing people down, crushing them under the growing list of things they needed to follow, and, and they didn't care that it was doing that. Religiosity burdens people. Preaching that says, do this, be this, don't do that, do more of this, have more of this, in yourselves. Preaching that focuses us on ourselves and what we are doing or not doing enough of just weighs us down. You feel this sense of your own inadequacy and failure. What we need. We need to have our eyes taken off ourselves to the living Christ. 
We need the announcement of his good news and the redemption of his cross to be brought to bear on these issues and how the gospel just transforms every part of our lives. And I want to talk about that more later. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We're still dealing with religiosity. Look in verse 47 to 51. Um, now, uh, I, I think as we read through 47 to 51, some of us maybe lost the plot. We were like, what is going on here? It's a really complicated section. But basically what he's saying is religiosity blinds us to our sin. He says, woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. In other words, you know, you build monuments to honor them, right? It's, it's an honoring thing to, to build someone a tomb. You portray yourselves as the patrons and defenders of the prophets. But it's your fathers who killed them. And you're doing the same thing. You've actually not heeded their message that God wants us to turn back to him with our whole hearts and that we're not walking in the love of God and in justice, our worship, our sacrifices are actually noise in his ears. And look what they're doing to God's word in the present. What are they doing with God's present day prophets? John the Baptist and Jesus himself, they're rejecting them. Religiosity blinds us to our sin. Uh, and the Pharisees and the lawyers, they don't want to see their mistakes or they can't see their mistakes. And so they're doomed to repeat them, right? They're about to do the exact same thing their fathers did to the prophets in bringing Jesus to the cross. Lastly, verse 52, religiosity hinders knowledge. And, and what's the knowledge it's talking about? It's talking about the knowledge of God. Right? All the trivialities, the laundry list of do's and don'ts obscures what really matters. It affects our sight. It brings down this spiritual fog on us. And, and you find yourself forgetting in the midst of all these details, what is this all about anyways? What are we doing here? Who's God? What's he like? I've been so caught up in what I should do or shouldn't do that I can't even see the one I'm supposed to be doing it for. Religiosity hinders, it obscures our knowledge. And because of that, we're not able to help other people enter into the knowledge of God. Right? He says that they prevent others from entering in. Why? Because we're just inviting them into the same fog we're stuck in. Those are the marks of religiosity. I just want you to give yourself a pat on the back. We got through it. <laughs> Way to go. But what is religiosity at its heart? What's the core? It's self-justification. Religiosity is what drives us to, to justify ourselves, to validate ourselves. R religiosity is placing my trust in myself and in my works to validate me and assure that God approves of me, that, that my life matters and has ultimate significance. It, it's really leaning on our own record to manage our guilt. It's leaning on our own record to assure us that we're okay, that, that we're on the right side of God's love and, and acceptance. And here's the order, the logical order of religiosity. It says that if you obey God, if you do your duty, then he will love and accept you. That's the order of religiosity. If you obey God and do what his word says, you'll be justified. 
And this isn't just something that affects church people and religious groups. There is a non-religious religiosity too, believe it or not. It's all over the pop spirituality of our age. Have you seen the show The Good Place? Anyone? Okay, some of you. Let me explain. It's a show about the afterlife, and I don't want to give too much away. But the principle of the show, what determines whether you go to the good place or to the bad place, is that at the end of your life, the total value of your life is calculated based on what you've done. The good and the bad, whether it contributed good or evil to the world. So some some examples, if you end slavery, that's like 800,000 points. Um, If you fail to disclose a camel illness when selling a camel, that's minus 22 points. Um, You know, there's all kinds of things, right? The, The sum total of your life, each thing you did, each thing you thought has like a point system. And it's going to be for you or against you. That There's some funny ones up here. Um, blow nose by pressing one nostril down and exhaling. Minus one point. Okay. And the end result is you have people, right? Um, you have people with a positive value or negative value assigned to them. It's, it's all calculated. Uh, this is the, the pop spirituality of our age. Right? Actually, this is the pop spirituality of human history. And the basic tenet is, is you've got a scoreboard hanging over your head. You live your life with a scoreboard hanging over your head, determining your value, determining where you will stand in an ultimate sense. Religiosity, be it religious or non-religious, makes us live our lives as if we're on trial. Every single thing you say or do is going to be used as either evidence for or evidence against you. Religiosity is behind the psychological anxiety people spend trying to convince themselves that they're a good person. And that God will, in the end, look kindly on you, and, and you'll go to the good place. It's not just in the church or organized religion. It's everywhere. It's in the heart of every person that looks to their performance Uh, They're producing, they're earning, or they're climbing to get that sense of personal value and to know that they're going to land on the right side of judgment in eternity. It's not just religious folk who have a religiosity problem, it's humans. We have a religiosity problem. So what's the antidote? The antidote is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which opens up the way to to true spirituality. If religiosity is false spirituality, the gospel of Jesus opens up the way to true spirituality. How do we really live in relationship with the loving God of the universe? So here's the gospel. It's the announcement that because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the verdict is in. The verdict is in. The verdict on your life and my life is in. You don't need to live in the courtroom anymore. And here's the verdict. Apart from Jesus, we had no hope. Every one of us has fallen short of God's standard. Everyone is broken in ways that we can't fix ourselves. Every one of us longs for a significance that we can't find in 
ourselves. This is how Romans 3, 23 and 24 puts it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. And we can all say a hearty amen to that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the good news. Verse 24, and all are justified. All are validated. All are declared to be in the right. Even though we've fallen short. How? Freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Amen. True gospel spirituality means that we can stop putting ourselves on trial. We can stop putting others on trial because we've already been justified. We've already been justified by the cross of Christ. And as, as we see ourselves drifting into religiosity, if we see those marks of religiosity in our lives, it means that on some level we don't really believe in the sufficiency and the finality of Christ's justifying work. If Jesus has really already justified me, I can stop living to justify myself. The only record that matters now, the only scoreboard that matters now is Jesus's. And the record is spotless. And he's given it to us. His record becomes ours. And he takes our broken, sullied record on himself. It's what John Calvin called the great exchange. He humbled himself to exalt us. He made himself a servant to set us free. He became poor to enrich us. He was sold to buy us back, a captive to deliver us, condemned to procure our pardon. He was made a curse that we might be blessed, the oblation for sins for our justification. His face was marred to re-beautify ours. He died that we may have life. You break through from religiosity to true spirituality when you meet this Christ. And he shows you at the same time just how lost you are without him and how far he went in his love to bring you home. That's how you break through into true spirituality. So what about the list of commands? Right? What about Christian duty? Is there such a thing? Is there still duty when it comes to the Christian life. Some Christians act as if obedience and duty, they have nothing to do now with the freedom we have in Christ. Uh, any duty is viewed as legalistic and unnecessary. I love how Francis Schaeffer speaks into this. He says, we don't come to true spirituality or the true Christian life merely by keeping a list, but neither do we come to it by merely rejecting the list. See, Schaefer highlights for us the oversimplification of the legalists on one side who say that duty is the thing that justifies you and of the libertines on the other side who say that we need to throw out the list, we need to throw out duty, we need to throw out obedience altogether. Both sides are wrong. They've, they've only latched on to a partial truth and we need to watch out for partial truths. You see, it's not just a matter of getting rid of the lists, it's a matter of living in the right order. And we need to live in the order of grace. 
We need to live in the order of grace that is mandated by the gospel. And it's the opposite of religiosity. The order of religiosity says you need to obey God in order to be loved and accepted by him. Grace says that God already loves and accepts you because of what Jesus has done. Therefore, we obey. See the difference? Jesus spells it out so practically for us in the text. Verse 41, notice he gives a command. He's speaking to our duty. He says, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Luke loves to highlight Jesus's concern for the poor and for the leveling of hierarchy at the cross of Christ. And generosity and charity are a big part of what it means to live in the order of grace because as you experience God's grace, uh, lavished on you, it becomes a joy to share it with others. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, you're meticulous about your tithing, but you neglect justice and the love of God. In other words, this is duty. This is what you should be doing. And then he says that this interesting phrase, which again holds those two extremes together. He says, you should have practiced the latter without dropping the former. See, Jesus doesn't do away with the lists and duties. He orders it properly. And the fundamental duty of true spirituality that, that comes out of this text and of uh, all of Jesus' teaching and out of the scriptures is to love. The fundamental duty is to love. Social, or he says justice. You neglect justice. Really, that's love on a horizontal level. It's social love and the love of God. And, and what Luke is doing is he's echoing the great commandment from the last chapter. Chapter 10, verse 27. If you want, you can turn a page back in your Bible and go there. You'll remember the story. We, we looked at this um, about a month ago. A lawyer, an expert in the law, comes to test Jesus. And he asks him what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And the result is that Jesus affirms out of all the, the lists and commands of the Old Testament, he affirms two. First, to love God. And it, and it elaborates, you know, um, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, to love your neighbor as yourself. To love God and to love your neighbor. Jesus says th these are the gravitational center around which everything in the Christian life orbits. It's the highest priority. In, in Matthew, Jesus says all the law and the prophets, the whole Hebrew Bible, hang on these two commandments. Just like you hang your coat on a coat hook. These are the two coat hooks upon which everything else hangs. And it shows that when we don't keep the love of God and the love of neighbor at the center of our faith, everything else falls off. We start to drift. We drift into religiosity in all its mutations. Legalism is religiosity. Libertinism is religiosity. The people who say there is no law, what are they doing? They're sticking their nose up at all the people who stick their nose up at other people. We drift into factionism, trivialism, 
judgmentalism, all the isms that make Christianity die a thousand deaths. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what it's all about, church. Love of God and love of neighbor, um, it sounds so nice to people, right? When they think about the Christian faith, ah, it's all about love. And it's a nice-sounding theory. It's a nice idea to love your neighbor. But let me just say that it is really difficult in truth and in practice to do. In fact, it's the hardest thing, maybe even the most impossible thing. And what love of God and love of neighbor does is it challenges us to keep growing uh, in in spiritual maturity in our our ability to not only receive the love of God, but to show it to others. Um, Because Jesus is not talking about sentimentality here. He's not talking about sentimental love or justice in theory. He is talking about something that takes concrete shape in our lives. And when you think about it, human love, like, what, what most people in culture call love is actually really superficial. Here's how human love works. We love the people we prefer, right? We love some people and not others because the people that we love have certain qualities that attract us to them, right? They're, they're funny, they're kind, they think the same way as us, they make us feel a certain way, and to a large degree, natural human love is actually quite self-serving. Soren Kierkegaard observed that if anyone thinks that by falling in love or finding a friend, he has learned Christian love, he is in profound error. Why? Because romantic love and friendship, we're loving the lovable person. Right? We're loving the person we think is lovable. We choose to love based on preference, not on the basis of, of God's command. And he, here's how it unravels. As that person changes, as they maybe lose the qualities we once loved in them, it almost excuses us from having to love them anymore. Right? That's the modern take on, on romance and marriage. You know, oh, things were great at first. We, we loved each other and then we fell out of love. So we, we split up. As if love is something you just stumble into. You stumble into infatuation. You stumble into, a, a, you know, a, a situation of mutual preference. But love is a choice. If you think about it, human love actually functions in the order of religiosity. Human love says, I will love you if you are lovable, right? I will love you insofar as you become lovable. I will love you insofar as you meet my preferences. And what Jesus' double love command, to love God and love our neighbor, what this command does is it brings us out of natural human love into Christian love, and that's love in the order of grace. It's love in the order of grace which says, I love you in your unlovableness. And somehow through this love, it's, it's going to transform someone. Right? The lawyer who came to Jesus 
seeking to justify himself after, right? He's answered well. He says, oh, love of God and love of neighbor, those are the two highest commands. And Jesus says, great, um, you're well on your way. And he comes back to Jesus seeking to justify himself. He says, okay, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan man who loved the man he saw. The Samaritan man loved the man he saw without taking thought for who he was. He couldn't even know who he was. He was probably beaten beyond recognition. His clothes were gone. No indication of status. No indication of of who he was. He loved the man he saw. And Jesus commands the lawyer, go and do likewise. In other words, it's not about finding the right person to call your neighbor, you could spend your whole life doing that. And frankly, that would be much easier because you wouldn't really have to love anyone. You're just on that search for the ideal person. I'm looking for my neighbor. Jesus said it's not, it's about being a neighbor and loving the person you see. In other words, it's about your heart. It's not about the other person and their status. Kierkegaard again observes, your neighbor is easy to recognize, easy to find if, you yourself will only recognize your duty to be a neighbor. Your neighbor is easy to recognize. They're easy to find if you yourself will only recognize your duty to be a neighbor. See, love in the order of grace, the love of neighbor loves the unlovable person so that they are transformed because of it. It loves across difference. It loves uh, without distinction. It descends to the bottom of the ranks in the pecking order that we've built up and it tears them down. If you think about it, that's what Jesus did for you and I. Jesus became a human. He was God and he became man and he became a human to to the lowest, most cursed degree in dying on the cross for us. That's what God has done for us. And in response to that grace, we're called in his grace and in his love to have that kind of love amongst ourselves. That's deeply challenging. I mean, as I've wrestled with Jesus' command, as as I've done some other readings, Um, Kierkegaard is really helpful in exposing in me the fact that everything I thought was love in my life was actually pure selfishness. (laughs) It's a really big hit. Because God's love is so much greater than tongue or pen could ever tell. God's love is so much greater. And so often uh, in our Christian walk, we take our notion of love and, and we paste it onto God and we think that's what God is like. But we need the scriptures to renew us in the true knowledge of God displayed in Jesus Christ and allow him to challenge what we've thought was love and to allow him to bring us into this kind of loving. It's really hard because it topples the idol of self in our hearts. It, it topples the need to put my preference first as the thing that dictates the conditions of a relationship. And it puts God between me and my neighbor, not my preferences. Deeply challenging. God has loved us in our unlovableness. He's raised us up in his love 
to be loved and to love, to live in the love of the Trinity, which is at the center of the universe, the love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to reflect that love to the world. And that's at the heart of what it means for us as a church to to be and to become a radiant people. There is a missional result to all that we've been talking about this morning. Getting rid of the germ uh, the toxicity of religiosity is crucial, crucial not only for your personal joy. I mean, it, it's not only miserable for people around someone who's caught up in religiosity. It's miserable to be caught up in religiosity. It robs you of joy. But not only for that. It's because our vocation as a church, and I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about you and I as followers of Jesus. Our vocation in the world is to reflect the radiance of God who is love and has loved us with a perfect love. And when the world sees a bunch of people like you and I who have no natural business loving each other, loving each other, no apparent unity around culture or age or preference, it makes people pause and think. This people, they're not normal. There's something else going on here and I want to know what it is. There must be a reason for it. See, true spirituality grounded in the gospel of God's grace to us in Jesus leads us to be a radiant, loving, and holy, and humble people that will inevitably draw people to Jesus. As we wrap up, I actually want to lead us in a time of prayer. And there are three different prayers I'll lead us through. And if you want to to join me in one of those prayers, please do so. I think uh, for myself and as I think about us, there are three prayers that have come to mind um, that are important for us this morning. The first is a prayer of repentance. Um, Maybe you've been caught up in religiosity as as we've heard the marks. You've been like, yeah, I see that in my life. Um, And you've gotten your priorities mixed up and God's spirit is, is graciously and lovingly opening your eyes to see that. Will you pray with me in the prayer of repentance? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for how you have loved us and rescued us in your grace. And we repent of the need to justify ourselves. We repent of forgetting that you have already done so in your cross. We repent of how we've pushed others down to raise ourselves up. We repent of how we've neglected loving you and loving our neighbors. Lord, forgive us. Lord, set us free from the compulsion to find our worth in anything other than you. Jesus, I ask that you would break the bonds of false religion and false spirituality that we have unwittingly or wittingly agreed with. And Jesus, we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. The second prayer is a prayer for revelation. Maybe you need Jesus to show you in a deeper way or, or for the first time this morning how his cross has freed you from the need to justify yourself. If that's you, would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the glory of the cross of your Son. And we ask that you would show us your glory. 
that you would show us how this gift of grace has freed us from the courtroom and has freed us to be loved by you and to love you back and to love those around us. Lord Jesus, help us to know with deep certainty that even when we fail and fall, you don't stop loving us. Show yourself to us maybe for the first time as we repent and come to you and experience your love. Jesus, we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. The last prayer is a prayer for empowerment. Maybe you're like me this morning and you hear the command to love God and love your neighbor and you're just so aware of your inadequacy to do so. We need the empowering of the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to Christ. And let me just suggest this is a prayer for all of us. We all need this, so would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, come. Come and empower us. Form the very life of Christ in us. Give us the power of the crucified and risen Lord to follow you and obey your commands. We can't possibly love as you love apart from your presence and power at work within us, apart from your very life formed in us. Fill us, we pray. Send us out as your missional people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. May we be a a radiant church, set completely free from religiosity to love God and to love our neighbor. Amen? Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.